0: Well, hi, everybody. This week's episode of Unanchored Boston, as always, is brought to you by Cold Springs RV, your destination for all things camping. And where? We're in New Hampshire, of course. And the great George Gray at George Gray's Lexington Toyota, the big wheeled himself, George Gray. More from George and more from Cold Springs in a moment. Right now, we just want to get right to our guest uh, right here. We are so excited. He had a big weekend last weekend, and uh, not nearly as big as his great, great career. And Bob LaBelle, as always, Handles the introductions. Take it away, Robert.
1: Well, Dante Scarnecchia is a legend in these parts, and it's hard to believe that an offensive line coach could become a, become a legend because <laughs> uh, it's usually the stuff that's reserved for head coaches and owners and you know you know offensive assistants, defensive assistants, or coordinators. But Dante is a legend around here. And to give you an example of that, this much maligned offensive line of this year's edition. All of a sudden, he walks in the building, and they play better immediately. So, I, I mean, there you go. There's the magic right there. So, congratulations on the Hall of Fame, Dante, and congratulations on your impact already on this offensive line although you haven't been coaching them. Uh, thank you,
2: Bob, and I take no credit for what happened the other day, but it was really fun to watch, and uh, they really played their best football that they played so far this season. So,
1: that was a great day in a lot of respects. How is it possible that you – what did you play at? What was your weight when you played the offensive line uh, where you went to college uh, on the West Coast? I went to Cal Western University. I was there for
2: two years. I played two years in junior college. And I think my last year I weighed 188 pounds and yes. played uh, played right guard. So – but it was a small school, you know. I mean, and uh, – I was that weight in high school and played right guard. Yeah, well – I liked it. And I, I, I love the game. When I went to college, it was for two reasons. I wanted to, uh, number one, I wanted to continue playing football as long as I could at whatever level I could play. I had no illusions of grandeur that I would ever play anything more than what I played. And, um, the second reason was I wanted to get a degree so I could uh, get a teaching degree and be a high school football coach. And that was it. That was my plan. And, I, I, you know, I, I did it. I lived it and I loved it.
0: You know, um, my dad was a high school coach, coached three sports. Um, so, you know, I can imagine the life, but it, you never coached in high school. You went right to college and we you fortunate that you went right to college or do you wish you had a little bit in high school?
2: You know, it's funny at that time, Mike, uh, I, I went, I got my degree in obviously in four years and then, um, I had to get a teaching credential. So I did. I got it. I got it the very next year while I was doing that. I was coaching the offensive line at Cal Western because they said, Hey, just, you know, get your graduate degree, coach the offensive line. I was coaching. I was the offensive line coach. I was coaching guys I played with that was that in itself was a blessing or a curse depending. Cause I'm sure I wasn't a lousy coach. Uh, but when I got my teaching credential, at that time, they had frozen hiring in in California. They had, the baby boom generation was big, and uh, there were no openings. And they just said, "We're not hiring anymore." And so, I couldn't get a job in high school. And so, for the next two years, I continued to coach the offensive line at Cal Western, and then got an offer to go to Iowa State as um, a graduate assistant. Although I had already my graduate stuff was already done, so it was for the Unbelievable figure of $300 for the season. And I, Susie and I, my wife-to-be, loaded up my Volkswagen and drove to Iowa and coached football for $300 for a football season. And to uh, subsidize ourselves, she was a uh, uh, waitress and a bartender at the Holiday Inn, and I was a janitor. (laughs) True. Every bit of it's true.
0: I, I bet. I, I, yeah. I bet it must have been some love. Uh, you know, I, Iowa is you know the middle of a cornfield. You know, when you when you're out there, it's pretty much the the city is sort of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, it's cornfields, the city, and then bang, yeah. cornfields again, right?
2: Yeah, names Iowa. It was, you know, was like nothing we'd ever experienced. Both of us are West Coast people, and uh, long way from the beach out there. But you know, Earl Bruce was the head coach, and he gave me an opportunity, and I will forever be indebted to him for doing that. Uh, post, you know, just a sidebar to all that is um, the night before we left, my folks gave us a going away party. Susie and I and her parents were there, and her father came up to me and said, Man, this is great. You know, you're he He was really a successful businessman. He said, uh, It's great. You're going to Iowa State. You know, and how much are they going to pay you? And I said, Well, $300. He said, Well, $300 a week isn't bad. And I said, well, that's pretty much for the whole year. And he started crying, you know, here I am taking his daughter off to Iowa. She just graduated from college. And I don't think he had, you know, you know, great, great foresight for us that we're going to do anything special. But it worked out
1: really good. And I was, we, we couldn't have been more fortunate. Yeah, well, you're pursuing what you love to do and you really stuck with it. And yeah. uh, he ended up at SMU and Ron Meyer. And I think that's the reason he ended up here in New England. Uh, it is the Ron Meyer connection. And I, th- I thought that was fascinating because, you know, whatever he was a character. There's no question about it, as as you well know, but your relationship with him must have been very special. It was, you know, in,
2: in a lot of respects, uh, I'll give you, you know, obviously there's been a lot of uh, uh, coverage on the pony excess and all that and the buying of football players and all that and if Ron were alive today, I'm sure he would take credit for the NIL situation we have in college right now and say, "Hey, we were doing that in 1980. We invented it." And uh, he he probably was right, you know. But um, uh, he gave me an opportunity. He kept me on when he went when he got there. I left for three years and went to uh, University of the Pacific, and then one year to NAU, Northern Arizona. And he called me and asked if I'd come back and you know, I told him no. And then two weeks later, he called again, me and Ron and uh, Susie, my wife said, Hey, we got to go, you know, this is a really good opportunity. And and so we went back and, and, you know, and then two years later, we came up here and, um, you know, and
1: you're right, Bob, that's how we got here. That was pretty, He must have been, uh, well, your relationship with him must have been special because he, he brought you here, he brought you to Indianapolis and you came back here and, you know, you just stayed with him and it I, your aspirations. I mean, you said you wanted to become a high school head coach. Why didn't you not want to become a pro football head coach, except for the time, I guess Dick McPherson was sick and you were the interim head coach, but why did you not want to become a head coach in the national football league?
2: Well, all right. Two things that we were talking about just to, uh, you know, bringing into the Ron Meyer discussion. When I went to Indianapolis after two years, he fired me. And so, oh, right. but, but wait a minute now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit more. So he did fire me. And then, uh, you know, maybe three or four late years after that, maybe longer than that, when, uh, uh, you know, we got rolling here with Bill and we'd won a couple of Super Bowls. I finally saw him. He came up here for a game. Uh, Because he had a friend he wanted to see or anything, and I saw him in the tunnel after the game. We hadn't spoken since the day he fired me, so he came up to me, gave me a big hug, and he said, "See, if I wouldn't fire you, you in the bin here." Typical Ron. So I have him. uh, I'm I'm sure he thought I have him to thank for everything, which in part I do. So at any rate, that's that. And then, as far as the head coaching thing goes, um, you know when. I left here to go to Indianapolis and then was fortunate to come to come back with coach McPherson. I told myself, look, I'm not chasing any jobs. I'm not doing that. I said, as if they'll, as long as they'll have me here in new England, I'm staying because we truly did love it here. Our kids have been raised here and um, you know, go figure we were able to, to do that. I mean, you know, there were four coaches later and, and here we are. So I, I, there's a blessings in everything, you know, and, and things that maybe don't manifest themselves until later on, but it certainly was true in that, uh, you know, in, in my instance, but to be, you know, to your question, to be a head coach, I had never really thought of it much. And I never, I never hired an anchor like a lot or or an agent, like a lot of these, um, uh, coaches do nowadays. A lot of assistants have agents, you know, they help them with their contracts. I never did that and never thought I had to. And, and I really didn't talk to the media much unless we had to. So if you're not doing those things, you're not getting a head job in this league. And, and that's okay. My, my life has been fulfilled in more ways than any man could ever hope for. So I have, I have no complaints and no regrets.
0: Let me ask you this question. <clears throat> it's always intrigued me. Um, you coach the tight ends. You coach special teams. You coach the interior line. Um, I was a quarterback in college, and I couldn't imagine coaching any other position for the next fifty years afterwards. I, I would just assume soon have someone ask me to build a spaceship to the moon. Mm-hmm. How does like I was an interior lineman become? Well versed in tight end, well versed in the special teams. How does that happen? And it happens a lot, but I mean, how does it happen?
2: Well, it's a lot, you know. In the two instances, and I'll add a third. I I coached defense here for four years for Parcells, All right. so I think I've always told everyone I coached, and in particular the offensive lineman, everything you do counts for something. Everything you do in life counts for something. And if you really think about it, you know, even the good and the bad—mostly the good and the bad—you learn from the bad, and you revel in the good, and because uh, the good brings a smile to your face, and the bad are things you don't want to forget because you don't want to repeat that. So I—I I think this. Uh, when I came up here, I had been the offensive line coach <coughs> at SMU and and ron said i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna let you coach the offensive line i want to let bill muir do it and bill's a great great coach and a great friend and so i was and that was partly the reason one of the reasons i didn't want to come up here because i wanted to coach the line but i you know my wife has great insight into a lot of things like she did when we were at northern arizona she said we really need to go up there and and we did, so I coached special teams. So what I did was I just threw myself into the whole thing and studied it, learned it uh, before the players came in in the spring, and and uh, I, I wrote the playbook for it that we used here, and I was a special teams coach for 11 years here, so a lot of people don't remember that, but it was an invaluable coaching experience. And for me, coming into pro football, as a, a novice coach in terms of the NFL, it uh, gave me away. The one thing about special teams coaches, you you know the whole roster, everybody, because they're all involved in special teams, as opposed to being a secondary coach or line coach, where you just know primarily the guys in your room. So you got to know the whole roster and and learn from them, and hopefully they learn from you. And then uh, when uh, when Coach Parcells came in, he said, I, "I'm." he says, I don't know you. I got a job for you. You probably don't want it. And that was to be the defensive assistant. So I did all the breakdowns for Al Grow and the defensive staff. And I think two years into it, I was promoted to linebacker coach. But Al coached the linebackers, and I really just kind of helped them. But I learned to to see the game from that side of the ball and why defenses do what they do and the difference between one-gap and two-gap defensive teams and coverage and all all aspects of it. So, you know, all of it counts for something, every bit of it. And um, that was a huge blessing in my life because I could see the game uh, as a special teams coach, situational football, as a defensive coach, how do you – really attack and 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 try to defend really good teams. And then as an offensive coach, you know, it, that just was a growing experience where I was able to integrate all, all three of those things. So it worked out really well.
1: I think people, when they see a, a football team, see the whole, you know, fans, in, including media, and see the big picture. They don't see the intimate picture. They don't see – the the units, uh, the offensive line, the defensive line as separate units. They see the team as the team and how it works together. Well, why were you, Why did you gravitate toward the offensive line, which seems like a really unglamorous uh, situation? I mean, why would somebody want to be the offensive line coach and end up being so successful? What? Why did you want to go there, and what was the key to your success?
2: Well, it was what I played in in college I played some linebacker in college but I played mostly the offensive line and so I was really that was my comfort zone and if you think about it you know they're not the greatest athletes like and especially among the linemen they're the lesser athletes because you want the really you know big strong fast guys on defense and on offense you kind of get what's left over And for some reason that that was a comfort zone for me and I liked being around them and um I'll never, ever regret that. You know, it's just that it's a room where they're more bound to pay attention and more inclined to, you know, to buy in. Because if you don't buy in to the way things are done, if you don't see the game through one set of eyes as an offensive line, all five guys seeing it the same way, you're not going to be successful. So for me, having played it, having, you know, coached it, um, It just seemed, I was in my comfort zone for such a long time, and maybe another reason why I just said, you know, this is it, From this is what I want to do, and and didn't chase jobs, and didn't uh, chase head coaching situations, which I never really had an opportunity to do anyways, but but it was great. It was a great fit for me.
0: You know, Bill, people have probably seen this uh, over the years. Uh, You can probably find it on YouTube, but Every once in a while, Bill will just stop practice and he'll pick an offensive lineman, maybe a defensive lineman. And it's if they can feel the punt, there's no meetings tonight. You have the night off. Yeah. Did you are me saying which guy was going to go out there and catch the punt? Did you have a guy that you knew had good hands? I know Vaughn McCarlin one time. Um, but this was really pretty incredible when, when he throws a guy out there.
2: No, uh, none of us had a had a say in it. But my prayer was that we would put somebody out there to catch the ball, so we wouldn't have any meetings. Because I didn't want to be in those meetings either. So the players had the night off. Didn't mean we had the night off. It meant there was less of a night. So uh, you know, he would pick. He would pick a guy. The only thing I ever did was I went to the punter and I said you kick up, you, you lob a softball up in there. No, we don't want any curveballs or no fastballs. Just put a nice easy one up that the guy can catch and everyone will ha- will be happy. And if not, we're all going to kill you. So basically that was the approach we took is, again, you know, we, if he skies the ball 100 miles in the air and it's coming down like a hand grenade, that guy didn't have a chance to catch it. We just wanted it caught so we could get away. And uh, and they all, you know, Matt Light was out there, Sebastian. He always put somebody out there, usually a rookie or something. And, and but it all worked out, it was fun.
1: Who was the best offensive lineman you've coached? You know, I would say there's three guys
2: that I just think are special, special players, and I always hesitate to use names. I didn't at the um. When I gave my speech at the induction ceremony, I I only used one name and that was Robert Kraft because he paid for the whole thing, you know, and so you got to say him. I think to say one guy's name is you're leaving 50 out, but I will, I will go ahead and respond to that by saying this. I didn't coach John Hanna. Okay. So you're going to, I'm going to say three guys beyond John Hannah because your question was who I coach. My coach, Chris Hinton, with the Colts, spectacular player. Why, that guy's not in the Hall, hall of Fame is beyond me. He played left tackle, played right tackle, played guard. He was all pro in all those positions. Spectacular athlete, very gifted. Uh, and then two guys here, Bruce Armstrong is really a good player. And then Logan Mankins, who is a a really, really great player, and I think his um, ability as a football player. Anytime you, you know, a guy like John Hanna says, "I really like Logan Mankins. I really would like to have played with him, and I think he could have been the other guard." He didn't say anything about being better than me, of course, but he could have been the other guard, and I think that's quite an indictment on him. Logan Mankins should be in the Patriot Hall of Fame. He should have been in there on saturday instead of me to be honest with you you know he's great football player tough as they unbelievable his toughness is as legendary as john's you know to play the whole season with an acl and never miss a practice and go out there and play all the games he played that's just the kind of guy he is so
1: you know i think those three guys are pretty special players well thanks for mentioning those names i I think that was we appreciate that for sure. Now, now that you're mentioning names, I want to ask you about coaches. Okay. The head coaches, because there were, was Ron Meyer, McPherson. There was Pete Carroll, was Parcells and Belichick. And if I'm leaving anybody out, let me know. Coach McPherson. Right, Coach McPherson. Right. <laughs> uh, Meyer so those- McPherson, Pete Carroll's three, Bill Parcells and Belichick, and Raymond Berry. And Raymond, okay. I'm glad you mentioned Raymond Berry because I was wondering where was Raymond Berry in that because I thought it just to me he was the well he was the most press friendly guy but you he was great wasn't he Yeah, I mean he yeah, was. Really, I'll, he was really I'll tell you,
2: great. I'll tell you a
1: very quick Raymond Berry
2: story. So he came in halfway through the I think Ron's third year and they fired Ron and uh, and we were all on the you know he retained we well, couldn't. Get rid of us, so we all coached for him the rest of the season. And uh, the day after the, after the season was over, he called a staff meeting and he let everyone go. You know, he just said, "Hey, fellows, I appreciate all you've done. That's that's it. But I have to have my own people here." And Raymond is is one of the great people that God ever put on this earth. A spectacular human being, and I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from every coach I've ever coached with. So. Um, so I went home and I was, Susie and I were sitting on the couch and trying to figure out our next move and coaching like you always do. And the phone rang and it was Raymond. He said, Hey, Dante, this is Raymond. And I said, I've been thinking about this. And this typical Raymond, I've been thinking because he's a thinker. And he said, uh, I want you to stay and coach the special teams and tight ends. And I, you know, I was, I sat there and I said, Okay, coach, uh, let me think about it and I'll call you tomorrow because I wasn't going to let him have it. Off easy on this one. He had just fired me two hours before. So So I went in and she goes, Who was that? I said it was Raymond. He wants to know if we want to stay. He said, Well, did you tell him yes? I said, No, I'm gonna tell him tomorrow. So I did. And you know, of course, he he didn't make a big deal out of it. And so I went in there and coached another three years with him and we went to a Super
0: Bowl. So worked out pretty good. What did you learn? Which head coach did you learn the most from?
2: Oh, you know, now there's one, I, I, I won't say names, but look, it, <laughs> I worked for two locked uh, uh, Hall of Fame coaches, Parcells and Belichick, and arguably Pete's in there. and um, But I learned something from every one of them. Every one of them taught me something, you know, whether it was how to do things or how not to do things. And there's truisms and all that. And I would tell you, the, the one guy that... Uh, that left me with a great, great message forever was uh, Parcells. Well, he got up in front of the team and I used to write a lot of this down. And he said, uh, he got a a black felt pen on a whiteboard and he wrote down one word, conflict. And um, he says, fellas, uh, let me tell you what conflict is. He says, it's a result of one of two things. You lie to me or I lie to you. If that happens, we're going to be in conflict or you meet uh, you fail to meet my expectations or I feel uh, fail to meet yours. We're going to be in conflict. So it works both ways. And I always told that to the players after because I think it's a great message. If you fail to meet my expectations or I fail to meet yours, then there's going to be a problem. And I think and the same thing is true with Lion. Hey, did you lift weights today? Yeah, coach. 20 minutes later, you find out they're lying. Well, you have a choice as a coach. Am I going to go in there and hack this guy up and tell him that I know better and tell him that we're in conflict as a result of it? Hell yes. Okay. That's the truth. Or when you go on the field and you can see one guy, he's not in today. He's, he's less out. He's more out than he is in. He's going through the motions and you got to go right now. He's failing to meet my expectations. And so That to me is a simple rule of life that has application, not just in football, but in all elements of life. I've I've, I've said the same thing to our kids, our grandkids, just because it makes more sense to me than anything I've ever heard. And I'll always use it in whatever time I have left or whenever I have the chance to say it, because it's true. It's as true as it can be. And you know, failing to meet expectations, whether you don't prepare them well enough. And there's times where, you know, that may happen, then they got a right to, you know, to be upset. So I just think that that was something that I learned. And I've, as I said, look, I believe this. We're all byproducts of everything we've ever done in our past. You guys doing what you did for so long and so well, and me, being a football coach. We're all byproducts of it. You know, we played it. We did it. We learned all our lessons. Well, you never learn all your lessons, but we learned a hell of a lot of them. And then all of a sudden, here we are. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's made
1: us better for the process. It's fascinating, Dante. I'll ask you this about football coaches versus fathers. And in some ways, football coaches become surrogate fathers for so many of these guys football coaches for some reason not only instill fear but discipline and you know an understanding of conflict whereas sometimes they don't fathers don't are not able to provide that they're almost too close to the students if you're if you understand what I'm saying they're they're at home there are so many different responsibilities but coaches seem to cut right to the chase in their uh, relationship with players they are in many ways father figures uh in many ways stronger father figures than we all had Now, i just you know i may be way off base here but i don't think so i'm just calling on my own experiences as well and i i feared my high school coach i didn't fear my father i i would not want to disappoint my high school coach I did not mind disappointing my father uh, and probably did many times. But I, I hope you understand what I'm driving at here. I really do. I understand exactly what you're saying. And I
2: really believe that a coach's job, number one job, is to tell the truth. Okay? And the number two job is to provide solutions. So if the truth is, you know, you're not playing very well but here's what you can do to play better. And I think that's exactly the same thing as being a parent or being a teacher. So if if things aren't going the way, if your kids aren't doing the things are going the way that they need to do, why wouldn't you tell them the truth and sit? And we have this deal called table talk. And when the, the old gunslinger calls a meeting at the table, you know, the kids come down and we sit around and hey, look at this is the way I see it. And this is, you know, you're disappointing us in this way. And I think this is what you need to to not disappoint us. So I think telling the truth is so essential in everything. And it can be done in a lot of a lot of ways. Sometimes and maybe this is to your point, Bob, you know, that the coach because of the way you you do things, maybe you're just a lot more blunt and and forthcoming on everything. And but I think he's, as a parent, you got to be the same way. There's nothing more important than your kids. And and for me, it was an easy transition from parent to coach, coach to parent, and because I just think that that's those are the values that you're trying to get your players to understand how to act and how to how to respond and how to you know to be a better person I think there's no difference than than raising your kids. And I that's why I, I get tickled. I go to a lot of sporting events and you know hear a lot I'm sitting in the bleachers with all the other grandparents and parents and all the rest of it and you know child goes up the bat at the plate and watches three balls go by for strikes, and all you hear is "Good job, way to go." Wait a minute, that ain't a good job. <laughs> I mean, you gotta say at some point you gotta say, "Honey, or son, you gotta get the bat off your shoulder and you gotta swing at that thing, and then maybe you'll hit it." But you know, you again provide solutions, and because it isn't a good job, and I'm not saying look, and I'm not trying to tell anybody how to parent, but you know, I just think that there's there's you got to keep it real and you got to tell the truth. So Absolutely. Absolutely. that's just one guy's opinion.
0: <clears throat> I, I can remember the day uh, I took three call third strikes in the league. And I could have when the game ended, I could have gone out the center field, and got my father's car, gone this way, and walked along the railroad tracks and go home. And I walked along the railroad tracks, <laughs> which was and I thought about it the whole way. And I never took a call third strike again. And my dad was was very understanding, but I knew he said, like he didn't want to see me after that. And <laughs> it was uh, it was a lesson well learned. Um, right. I walked along the railroad tracks with my head down and said, "What was I doing? You never leave the bat on your shoulder for a third strike." Right. Um, but you're right. Everybody gets a trophy today. Everybody says nice job. But every once in a while, they've got to be like, "Gotta do a better job tomorrow, son."
2: Yeah, I mean. Uh... I don't mind the trophies and all that. I've seen plenty of it uh, because that's the way things are done. But um, again, you know, to me, it goes back to just being yourself and keep and telling the truth and, uh, and providing solutions.
0: And it'll always be that way. And I'm an old guy. I'm not changing. <laughs> how much, how uh, much, uh, Belichick told me the story once, and I don't know who it to be the, bear, the bearer of bad news in this, but a lot of, when you went to uh, a road trip, And if it was near the college where somebody went, invariably somebody always snuck off campus or snuck off the the hotel. And he said that one one time you guys were playing at Indianapolis and Matt Light, I think, was a rookie. And Belichick told everybody, I don't want anybody going back to the old school. Well, sure enough, Light snuck out, apparently. I guess it went down to West Lafayette and went to Purdue. And Belichick had to bench him for like the first series. Um, Do you remember that? And A and B... Do are you the one that has to tell him he's not playing, or is, would it be Belichick?
2: I remember. I don't. I, I remember Matt's first season, where we were playing Cincinnati in the first game. He was a rookie, and he was going to start for us at left tackle, and um, he went out shopping for cowboy boots. That's what yeah. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't for party time because this was in Cincinnati, but he's from Ohio. So Uh, he went out and got cowboy boots and damned if he doesn't walk in the meeting late with a shopping bag full of cowboy boots. (laughs) So he he didn't start and he didn't play until sometime late in the first half. And that was a lesson for him to learn and a, a good example to all rookies not to be so damn dumb. (laughs) <laughs> you I think you can get away with that one. So, you know, again, you learn from all your mistakes and, you know, and, uh, in his case, <laughs> Matt, I love Matt Light, but he's, he's something else, man. Uh, at any rate, uh,
0: you know, it's just part of the deal. So. now, Was, was he one of those guys that always tried to con you into something that you knew wasn't true that you knew was like, it was always the guy like, uh, Parcells, I mean, uh, Steve Nelson used to tell us that they they always used to try to get Parcells say, No, we don't we don't run uh, sprints after practice. The is going into a meeting and then, then Parcells would say, What do you think I am? Charlie the Tuna that want to bite the hook and take this? No. Was Light one of those guys, or did you have another guy that was like that?
2: No, Light was Light was he was like that, but you know, he he never tried to get away with stuff like that. I mean, that was that was crazy. But uh, you know. I Matt Light, the only thing that happened with Matt Light, and I uh, told us the other day at the induction ceremony because he was moderating this panel. The first day I met Matt Light, he came. Uh, we drafted him in the second round. He came to the complex that night, and I was, you know, Bill said, get him in the meeting room, start going over the, the playbook with him. So I did. And the first thing he says, hey, coaches, I just want to tell you one thing right now. It's just so you know, I got narcolepsy first thing he says, now, I, I'm going to tell you, honestly, God, truth, I didn't know what narcolepsy was, was well, a guy that falls asleep all the time. He says, coach, I fall asleep anywhere. I can fall. I can be in a classroom. I can fall asleep. I can be, uh, you know, anywhere and I'll, I'll fall asleep. Like I'll be in my car driving and I'll fall asleep. And he says, so I just want to tell you this because I may fall asleep in your meetings. So, <laughs> so I, said, Matt, I said, let me tell you this you'd be a lot better off falling asleep in your car than you would in my meeting. He got the point. And so what I did is I made him sit right in front of me in the meetings. So, you know, I could see the screen and I had him right in front of me. I know if he was nodding, I think he honestly perfected the skill of sleeping straight up without his head (laughs) dropping. So the matte light effect quickly or in time made me change the whole scheme of our meeting rooms where I put the, the. I had a video monitor like I'm looking at right now in front of me, all the players were in front of me and the screen they were looking at, that I was looking at was behind me. So I, could, I was looking at what they were looking at and I could also scan the room to see who was falling asleep, they hated it. It was like death for them. <laughs> Oh, my God. He's like, got his eyes on us all the time. It's never going to work. And that's how that's how I conducted the
1: meeting is the last five years I coached. Wow. That's really cool. Dante, I have, Mike's got a question. I got to do a commercial here. Not not because I have to. It's because I want to. Okay. Um, and then Mike's going to ask you a, a question we ask all of our special guests. And you certainly are one of those. But I don't know if you're a camper or not, you spend a lot of time out in the America's Southwest and probably a big fan of the Arizona Diamondbacks right now. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not jumping on that bandwagon, it's great for them. I, yeah. I, I don't, I've never seen the Diamondbacks play. Okay, that's, a, that's fair enough. You know, neither am I, except for last night. There okay. you go. Uh, right, uh, this is about camping and campers. Camper, it's called Camptoberfest. Get it? It's going on right now through October 31st at Cold Springs RV. So please take advantage of of end-of-season savings. You can also get a great deal in one of the new 2024 models that are now in stock. So go check out the latest in pop-ups, travel trailers, fifth-wheelers, and motorhomes. Keep this in mind, Dante, when we talk about motorhomes because the question's coming up. Ask about winter storage for your RV and protect your RV with winterizing at their Pro RV Service Center. Get to Camp Toberfest at Cold Springs RV in New Hampshire. Tell them Lobie and Lynchy sent you, and learn more at coldspringsrv.com, which sets the stage for Mike's question to you, Dante Skarnacchia.
0: All right, Dante, here we go. We all know John Madden didn't like to fly, so he took a bus, they call it the Madden Cruiser. So um, Cold Springs RV, we're trying to talk them into building a Lobel cruiser Mm. uh, port to port. So um, we've come up with, um, um, you'll probably never get paid this, but um, we're going to let each one of our guests take the Lobel cruiser and drive it cross country. The one stipulation is that you have to pick somebody to ride shotgun with you across the country, 3,000 miles. And it could be somebody past, present, deceased, alive. Uh, Somebody you'd like to spend 3,000 miles with riding shotgun having a conversation with. Who do you think it would be?
2: Okay. Uh, I have, I have a, I'm a, I was a history major and I had a double major in college. I love history. Um, And one of my historical figures that I've, I've read so many things about was Robert E. Lee. Oh, wow. Uh, and I've read a lot about his life and the type of person that he was and all that. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I would love to ask him a lot of things, but I, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and choose him. Cause I'd like to ask him a lot of things, you know, you know, Like a football coach, he had a lot of um, ability to, you know, control and move and, you know, all the the people in his army and all the rest of it. But, you know, you would really like to ask him, you know, why did you send all those guys up uh, Cemetery Ridge on the third day at Gettysburg? You know, and, um, you know, I just um, I think that'd be interesting to talk to him.
0: I think that, that that's fascinating. Um, fascinating, right? It, it is. Um, we've had a couple of guys, you know, like Mike Milbury, the former uh, Boston Bruin, picked um, Winston Churchill. Yeah. Um, you know, some people pick their their dad. Some people pick their high school coach. Some people pick others. That that that's a fascinating. Uh, it shows it. See, another. I wish we knew this side of you when you were coaching Dante. You know, you we should come out and we should have had these discussions.
2: Well, <laughs> I don't think it's an opportunity lost. I think we're fine. You
1: know, we went on. It just the more you talk to someone, the more you learn. God you brought up Lee and uh, Gettysburg, Killer Angels. You must have read that book.
2: You know, I uh, haven't read that West by Shara, right? And I yeah. haven't, I haven't read it. Uh, but I've read all about that. And I've been to Gettysburg, I've been the Antietam,
1: Gettysburg, um, all of them. Fascinating time. I mean, really. Yeah it is. Uh, these guys you wondered how they were able to communicate with the resources that they had compared to what we have today. You know no how, doubt. how Grant and Lee managed to move those people, how you know they had to the fight through Virginia. Yep. Just the stuff that went on, as as you know. Um it's yep. just fascinating. But they, it they does,
0: didn't have one of these to get on no, the one one floor <laughs>
1: Yeah, you're right. Whatever. Let me, which brings us back to the offensive line and and those kinds of moves. What things did you really have to teach an offensive lineman? Did you have to? How did you? Uh, like in Monday nights with with San Francisco, every, everybody in the line moving left at the same time. Those kinds of blocking schemes, trap blocking. What kind of? What were the things that you really had to focus in on in teaching? Uh, pro football lineman? I think that, I think this, I learned a, a lesson a long time ago from a
2: very old coach that I was coaching with at Iowa State, Tom Harper, and I'll always give him credit for this because he, what he said to me in a 15-minute conversation before practice one day left an indelible mark on the way I coach football for a long time, and he was, you know, he was scratching some stuff on his uh, uh, practice sheet, practice page, and Know, what he was going to do in this period, what he was going to do in that period. And I asked him, what are you doing? And I was a young coach, just starting out and all the rest of it. And he said, I'm planning my drills. And I said, well, what are you doing that for? And he says, well, uh, if you're not seeing your drills on your game tapes, then you're doing the wrong drills. And that made more sense to me than anything I ever heard. So everything we did at practice was all designed to do drills that we would see on our game tapes, pass protection drills, okay? How do you want their positioning to be? Well, it's always your weight is always inside the midline of your body. And that's how I always said it to them. Your hands are in front of your numbers. You're flexed at the lower body explosion points, ankles, knees, and hips. And you use your upper body strength to control the pass rushers. You hit them with your hands and you don't let them get into you. So you're always setting them with inside out leverage. Everything I just said to you is run through drills and taught to them so that becomes a habit because there's good habits and there's bad habits. And if you coach good habits and they embrace good habits, then they have a better chance to be successful. If they don't embrace good habits and rely on old bad habits, then they will not have a chance to be successful. So those were things that I thought were important. Now, you know, all the rest of the variety of things as, uh, as needed, like, let's say you are going to be trap blocking someone this week. Well, then you go through all the things that allow you to be successful to do that angles, you know, usually setting up the guy you're trapping all that. So I just think that everything that we do structurally uh, in preparation for a game, you want to drill those things. And I hope that we will have done the same things, those same plays over a long period of time during the season and multiple years even, inside zone blocking, outside zone blocking, all the things we did, pass, different variety of pass protection. But do those things so much so that they just become habits and good habits. And then I think if you do that, you have a chance to be
0: successful. What about, uh, let me ask you, coaching the offensive line with Tom Brady under center or Tom Brady in the gun? Um, forget about the, how great Tom Brady was, just his discipline. He's not the type of guy like like Cam Newton where you could be blocking and you don't know where the hell the guy is. Like I could be over outside the numbers. Is, was Brady a pretty disciplined guy? Was he, um, did it make your job a little bit, I don't want to say easier, but more consistent with Brady under the center or in the gun every game?
2: Yeah, I mean, clearly it did because you always knew where he was going to be. You always knew that Tom would look first off for him to get in the pocket and then try to outrun people to the outside. That was never going to happen okay? (laughs) because he couldn't run out of sight in three days. (laughs) okay. so but now he would work the pocket, which meant for us up front that the interior three had to control the depth of the pocket. If he couldn't step up, it was we we were in trouble. And also the tackles had to then control the width of the pocket. So if, if we had depth and we had width, he could maneuver within the confines of the pocket and find either throwing lanes to throw the ball through to people that were open, which he could see. And and the greatest thing about Tom was that he usually got the ball out in rhythm, you know, with the rhythm of the, with the depth of the pattern or routes, uh, the way the pattern was configured and all the rest of it. He was just so smart and so disciplined and um, that he was great. I mean, that was just made it so much easier for all of us. I don't know if there's anybody that ever played with Tom, especially um, and specifically the upfront guys that didn't appreciate him for the way he was. That's all the good news. Unlike those these fabulous quarterbacks that can run out of there and do all the things they do, he couldn't do that stuff, and we all knew it. We also knew where he was going to be, where the pot of gold was, and these were the things we had to do to protect him. So, you know, it was a lot of responsibility, but you know,
1: you know, Tom gave us a lot of success. I want to ask you about the Hall of Fame that uh, induction, but also. Prior to that, you came back the year that they beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Right? That was that was yeah. That was five. You have five rings. I do, according to my my research. And the first, the, the beating Atlanta, coming back from that, I that had to be a special game. So I'm just asking you in that context, Dante, uh, was there was there one thing, one moment, one time that you remember that you you would say this I was there as a coach, as a fan that really stands out. That really is a as a cherished memory for you. I, I think
2: um, I think this I, you know it was 28 to three going in the halftime and I look down on because I write down every play on my clipboard so that when I get the pictures I can I know what I'm looking at. And um, we went in at halftime, and as a, an offensive staff got together and started talking about things, and I and I told Josh, I said, Josh, we we just ran 44 plays out there, 44 plays, and um, that's a lot because normally in a half you probably run 30, whatever it is, and I said, so you know things aren't going bad; they're going bad from a score standpoint, but we know we're moving the ball. We're doing some things. We're, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot on too many times. And so, so what I, what I told the linemen was, I said, I said, fellas, look at, you know, we got to go out there and there's not a whole lot of margin for error here. And we have to play our very best. And we've, we've got 44 plays on them. If we can have the same kind of half and, not make many mistakes. And, you know, the defense is going to play good and let's just see where it all goes, but it, it's really one possession at a time at that point. And you got to give them some hope and everything and go back to everything counts for something. Well, everything in the first half counted for something because in the second half, we ran, whatever it was, another 50 something plays. And, you know, I don't know if we even punted in the second half. So, you know, hey, that was one of those rare things. I don't know. It's hard to duplicate that or if it'll ever happen again, who knows. A game of that magnitude, it's damn hard, but the players credit, they didn't they they didn't self-doubt and and we had some success early and the defense had some success early and we got rolling and you know, the rest is history. And you were going to say, Mike,
0: I was going to say I, I, that half regular halftime during a regular season game. I think you have twelve minutes. We do barely enough time to take a leak and uh, you know just uh, you know sit down maybe maybe get a word with you and back out in the field. But in the Super Bowl, you got about forty minutes.
2: Yeah, it's a long time.
0: Yeah, Did that down twenty eight to three? You had to regroup. Um, if you had a twelve minute half, do you think you would have had the comeback you had in the second half as opposed to a Super Bowl halftime? We had a lot of time to talk and, and, and just recompose and, and reignite yourselves.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question and a fair question. I don't, I, I think, I think that the uh, plan, it wasn't a plan. We just said, we got to do the same things we're doing. Probably going to have to throw it a lot more, probably want to go empty a lot more because Tom was in his comfort zone. When you put five guys out there and he could see the defense and do all the things he was going to do. And, uh, and we but we wanted to keep James in the backfield, James White who had 19 catches or whatever it was during the game. So to get him out and to keep the chains moving and I think it was a combination of all those things. Would it would we have come up with the same stuff? Yeah, cuz we you don't have much of a choice, you know. We know we're going to throw it and this is how we're going to throw it and now we got to do a great job of protecting them. So I think that that's pretty much what we, you know, obviously that's what we did, but that's what we came up with.
0: I want to ask you about the, Bob was talking about the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, you get the red jacket put on you. I mean, does it hit you right there and then? Wow. I mean, you know, I've had a great career. I've had a lot of enjoyable things. Well, when that red jacket goes on you, when you look at some of the other guys that are in the room with you right there, tell me what that feeling was like.
2: I think for me, it was, um, um, I was very much in awe of it, uh, extremely honored, uh, extremely flattered, and extremely humbled by all of it. Because, look at—I'm just an assistant coach, okay? I'm not—I don't even get that title. I'm a contributor. When you go into going the Patriot Hall of Fame, and that's—that's that's the way it is, and it's fair. And um, I think that yes, to put on the red jacket—I don't know if I ever have it. I don't know if I have a sport coat that's as nice as this one. <laughs> it's really. I, mean, I just kept touching the material. Man, this feels really good. Now, I don't have anything like this in my closet. So, uh, no, it was nice and uh, to be up there with Richard and all those guys. Matt Light, all of them were up there. Mike Haynes, who was here my first year, he was yep. there. So, and then most importantly for me, our our family uh, and it's extended family and all the rest of our son who works for the Jets. He and his wife came up Yeah, with I was ask you about yeah, <laughs> with three of our grand, two of our grandkids and one on the way would we'll be here in mid February, but our five grandkids were there. And uh, I mean, how do you do any better than that? And yeah. it was such a great experience.
1: So, um, okay. Somebody comes up to you and asks you, Dante, what's Belichick really like? How would you describe Bill Belichick to someone who's not met him or does, doesn't know him, or, or how would you describe him? So, if somebody said, "Okay, Dante, you you know you know the guy you coached with him, but how? Who is he?" I think he's really. Uh, I think he's a brilliant football coach. I think
2: he's all business. Um, there's not a lot of yucks in there okay, as a staff and everything. And in fact, when it would come up, it was, I think <coughs> hey, he's smiling and he's kind of laughing. I wonder if it's forced, but uh, but, but but that's Bill, okay, But I would tell you this, he's as easy a guy to work for as there ever was because like Parcells, there's a vision that he has that's made, made clear, made clear to a coach and in no uncertain terms what he wants. And as long as she, as long as that's given back in kind, then I think that he and then everything's fine. You're never gonna ever get any he's never gonna fight back at it. You know, he's you know, this is how I want it done. This is the way we're gonna do things. And and I, I just if you know those two things, then it's easy. And I and for Bill, I think it was easy to work for. Him. You know, people say, well, you guys are there all hours of the night. Yeah, that's self-induced, though. I think that I never saw him standing at the door when I was going out or standing at the door when I was coming in. You know, he's just pretty much everybody, you know, was in when they thought they needed to be in and left when the work was done. And whatever hours that was, it was. And uh, I think it makes it he made it really, really easy. Easy. He's an extremely generous guy he's an extremely you know there'll be times where you know you can talk about you know your, your family and stuff like that and he's great about it and there's times also when non-football times it's now it's not a lot but it does happen so I like the guy I like working for him and I really appreciated our time together
0: you kind of a dry sense of humor when he when he wants to be right yeah. He's- kind of funny i i always found him kind of funny you know we would do the show before before the lights went on he'd come in and he'd be peeing and moaning about um spring break where his daughter was going costa rica or something like that he'd yeah me, where the hell did you go on spring break and i said i don't know i went to revere beach for 25 cents or something like that he says jesus costa rica you know who blah, 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 blah. and then the red light would go on he says well they're playing cover two and they play, <laughs> uh, sam willie mike over here and it, yeah. i always find him kind of funny kind of humorous you know not all the time he's was you're right not a lot of yucks but he, he was was fairly funny sometimes yeah
2: i mean that's all all of it's true you know and i i felt the same way about parcells you know he's he could be really really fun to be around but um you know i just i, I was one of the, i worked for a lot of good head coaches i really did and um you know I, I really appreciate all of them for what they taught me and uh, and I said it the other day work for six head coaches that allowed us as a family to stay here for thirty four years you know yeah. you owe those guys are a, a hell of a lot
0: you know you a, lot. going up to the top of the lighthouse and ringing the bell was that, are you afraid of heights at all?
2: No, I did all right with that i <laughs> i didn't I didn't like I never I, as I told a young lady that asked me if I would do it. I said, you know, I'm kind of—I've been very adept at flying under the radar for a lot of years. Now I got to go up there in front of all these people and ring this bell. <laughs> so, but I—I I couldn't. There's no way I could refuse Mary Kate, who asked me, and she because she had done so much for our family and helping get everybody, you know, into
0: this thing. So it worked out great. <laughs> and the story about Big Cat Williams when. Uh... Bill was telling me. Yeah. I don't
2: remember it that well, other than yeah, he was big, but you know they're all bigger than me. I mean, every one of them's bigger than me, like, a lot bigger. So what do you say? Oh, you're you're six eight, so I'm not gonna yell at you, and or you're six one, so I am. So one die, all die, and you know if they're not doing it the way you want to do it, you got to tell them. Got to tell them the truth. So. I think that's one thing that really uh, was I'll use the word culture within the offensive line room, but there was a culture of this, you know, where the guys that had been around for a period of time were very much inclined to go up to the young guys who maybe for the first time had heard things said in a kind of a tough and abrasive way and, you know, with no nonsense and not a lot of, of fun to it, but you know, I just said, "Hey, that's the way it is. Get used to it." Because we we were, were talked to, we were treated that way, and the next guys that come in are going to be treated that way. Because you know, there's there's no guys that are above it, and if they all understand that, then everybody I think has an appreciation for it. Where or, or maybe that's a little bit too nice of a word, but they all got it and they all helped each other with it. So. I thought it was good.
0: Let me ask, let me ask you this question. Um, you said you always, always were under the radar. That's the way you wanted it. Offensive line coach. A lot of people don't know who you are. But when you were, uh, you were in, the ceremony was indoors, and then uh, at halftime of the game, going out on the field, the rousing, loud ovation. Did you say to yourself, "Wow, I didn't know this many people really cared about me. This is really, really something." Did that blow you away?
2: You know, in a lot of respects, it did, Mike. It was humbling, but you know, keeping it real. What, what are they going to do? You know, when you go out there and they announce Vrabel and me, and you can get in that argument with Mike. Who are they cheering louder for, Mike me or you? <laughs> I just kind of deferred to Mike and let him have it. So it was, it was all great, man.
0: Oh, it, was, it was. It wasn't just a polite clap. It was a, it was a roar, and uh, oh. and you really, really. Should be incredibly proud, of not only of your career, but the, but the impact that you've had in so many people, so many fans in this in this this area out here. I, wow. I thought it was I was just blown away. I was I was so happy for you.
1: And I was second. It. I, I was
0: Dante, because,
1: you know, as a guy that prided himself on flying under the radar, you've uh, you were just a little more than a contributor. People really recognized what you were able to contribute and what that you made a difference and i think that's all you can ask for in life is to make a difference
2: thank you i appreciate you both saying those things um, i again you know it's just uh, i look at when i was 12 years old i kind of had an idea what i wanted to do and there was a playground instructor at the i'd go down to the school and play every afternoon and he would organize sports. And I thought that guy had the greatest job in the world. He was a college student. They were probably giving him a buck 50 to go out there and do it an hour. So, um, I thought, man, this guy's got a great job. And then when I went into high school, the coaches at Montebello high school were my, I was, I looked up to those guys and I wanted to be just like them. And that's why I got into coaching. And so for 48 years, I lived the dream that I always dreamed. And, um, how are you going to do any better than that? You know, I was, it was, it was great. It was what I wanted to do every day. I, I've had many bad days at the office. Like we all have, I should say rough days at the office. Um, and, uh, but there was never a day that I hated doing what I was doing. Not one day. So I'm grateful for all of it. And, um, um, this past weekend was, uh, was amazing and a blur. And, but, um, special in so many ways and now i'm happy to go back to being god knows <laughs> plays pickleball and fixing to go out there and mow the lawn right now no one's going to be yelling at that
0: <laughs> hey let me get one one last commercial in here really quick uh, before we say goodbye you know if you're thinking about a new car go where lobel and lynch go go see our friend the big wheel george gray at george gray's lexington toyota We've been customers for years because we know that George Gray is going to treat you right. They're family-owned and operated dealership that we trust, and you can trust as well. Go see the big wheel himself, George Gray at Lexington Toyota, and you will not be disappointed. 409 Mass Ave in Lexington. I saw him the other night in a Chinese restaurant, and he was it was great. He was, he was talking about you, Dante, as a matter of fact. He <laughs> said, isn't that great that Dante's going to get into the Patriots Hall of Fame? I said, yep. I said, well-deserved. It probably should have happened about 10 years ago, but he says, "He says, I love the guy. And these are people that have never met you, that feel this way about you, you know? And that's got to be, that's got to tug at your heart a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very kind of him to say. I, I appreciate that. And um,
1: yeah, I can't explain it. Well maybe you ought to have Susie on to tell the real truth behind the <laughs> oh man, watch out. <laughs> well, you have a gift, and that gift is humility, besides oh, the ability right. to communicate. Thank you. Thanks yeah. Thank you So much,
0: Dante. Uh it's a really a lot of fun. We had, we we both we both love covering you. You always treated us with respect and kindness, and um and we, we love coming. It was our honor, Bob's honor and my honor to cover you all these years. And and not only that, but to call you off friend as well.
2: Well, thank you. I, f- I feel the same way about you two guys. And I've known you since I got here. And it's been
0: you, you two are the stand-up
2: guys in the media. And I just appreciate that about both of you. And I appreciate our time together today. Thank you for having me.
1: Mike, finally somebody said it. <laughs> <laughs> the truth. This no, is no, the truth. No, thanks.
0: Thanks. thanks. All
1: right. Take
0: thanks care, so guys. Everybody. Go hey, down. Right, awesome. right, right. I'll see you later. Make sure you follow us on unanchoredboston.com.
2: Unanchored Boston is a Burke Advertising LLC production.
1: To learn more, go to unanchoredmedia.com.